my goals and expectations when I joined the team was, you know, committing to the Olympic trials, doing this. But we we're, were all changed through the pandemic. You know, we, who I am, like, as a 24-year-old joining a professional team versus me, the 27-year-old, kind of living through this high-end running thing. One of my number one goals is, like, I don't want to just be stuck on the domestic mile circuit. Like, if I'm going to do this, like, I want to do it right. And I was, like, pretty bummed that my body just kind of tipped the other end of the scale and couldn't quite figure it out. And I think if I committed to, like, keep going and training in the environment that I was in, it kind of would have been the same cycle. So I was like, you know what? This might not be the most prudent move, but I'm going to end this and start a new chapter. And so that's kind of what I've been doing this summer is figuring out what that chapter looks like. Hey, what's up, everyone? That was Dana Giordano. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. My conversation this week is with Dana Giordano. She's a top middle distance runner on the track who competed in the 5,000 meters at this summer's Olympic trials. She also hosts the popular podcast, More Than Running with Dana, where she sits down and talks with some of the most inspirational and insightful women in running, from athletes and coaches to insiders and advocates. In this episode, we talked about where she's at right now and rediscovering the love for running after feeling distraught following the Olympic trials. She told me about living in Singapore as a kid and developing a love for travel. We spoke about the professional side of the sport and the challenges of making it as an athlete today. We discussed her podcast, of course, connecting with people, sharing untold stories, and a lot more. Before we dive in, a big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I've run over 2,500 miles so far this year, and most of them have been in the Fresh Foam 1080 V11. This shoe is an absolute workhorse. It's got great cushioning underfoot that's protective but not too soft, providing a smooth and responsive ride that I really enjoy and appreciate whether I'm running short, long, fast, or slow. The fit is amazing. They're snug without feeling tight and will accommodate a wide variety of foot types. Plus, they're super durable, and I know that I'll easily get at least 500 miles out of a fresh pair. The Fresh Foam 1080 V11 is available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your local run specialty retail store. Check them out today and consider adding a pair to your rotation. This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Precision Hydration, and as the name suggests, they're experts in helping you nail your hydration strategy. That said, I was stoked to hear that they're now doing for fueling what they've done for hydration, and I've been using their new Precision Fuel products regularly the past few months. Both the gels and drink mix work great, and I was an instant convert. They have subtle taste, provide steady energy, and haven't given me any gut issues. Head over to precisionhydration.com and check out the quick carb calculator. All you need to do is enter what type of event you're training for, how long you're expecting to be racing, and at what intensity, and they'll tell you how many grams of carbohydrate that you should be taking in per hour and how their products will help you address those needs. You can even book a free 20-minute video call with them on the footer of their website at precisionhydration.com to ask any questions that you have about hydration and fueling for your next event. And as a listener of the show, you can get 15% off your first order by using the code TMS15, that's capital T, capital M, capital S, 1-5, when checking out at precisionhydration.com. Okay, please enjoy my conversation with Dana Giordano, and be sure to stick around for a little bit afterward to hear a clip from season three of her podcast, More Than Running with Dana. Fun fact before we get into this conversation. Did you know that I am 1-0 against you all time in road races? I actually did know that because I can tell you what race it was <laughs> and I can tell you what point in the race where I was cursing your name. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Uh, BA 5K Circa 2019. 
Exactly. Yeah, it was on the windy stretch of Boylston that I was like, I'm too tall for this. This wind tunnel is getting me. I I remember that moment. There were a pack of BAA women who were running together still at that point. And I remember I remember seeing you and I was like, man, I'm like, I I don't know if I have anything left here. I don't know if I have anything left here. And I was just like plugging away, plugging away, plugging away. And somehow I was able to like scoot by, but I felt like I was in, I felt like I was in like quicksand at that point. Um, it was it's a very a like, race. yeah, it was a windy and I remember soupy day and it just mm-hmm. felt like, you know, we were running through, through pea soup. And then I remember having like just some like, small modicum of satisfaction that I was able to finish in front of some of the, the BAA women. But I also, you know, I also had gotten beat by a couple of the others as well. I believe Erica Kemp beat me that day. And um, Uh, yeah, Elena Tab too. Yeah. But you guys had quite a, quite a strong pack. I'm I'm impressed that you remember that. I was just like kind of digging into some old stuff and I was like, I wonder if Dana and I have ever been in the same race. And I was like, well, I'm like one possibility would have been BAA 5k in 2019. And here we go. Yeah, the only reason I remember that is because it was one of my first it was my first road race with the BA during like the Boston mm-hmm. Marathon weekend. So it was a very memorable weekend. And I remember that because one of this other Boston local runner was cheering for me. And I just remember hitting that point where I was I hadn't done a road five K, like a really truly competitive one, mm-hmm. you know, with like prize money on the line and all that. And my teammates kind of blew by me at the end and I was like I'm the middle distance girl out here. I just got to eke it out. And then you make a 90 degree turn at the end and you're like, could mm-hmm. it just be done here? Like, do we need to do this whole turn thing in the end? Yeah, it's, it's a brutal course. I don't know that I'll do it again anytime soon, but uh, it's a cool weekend to be to be in Boston. Uh, it's actually coming up a few weeks from this conversation, even though it's October, which is a little strange. I don't know that they're having the 5K this weekend, but it'll be nice to be back in the city and hopefully experiencing some of the the energy and excitement of the marathon. Yeah, no, I'm I'm going to be at a Chicago that weekend, actually, this time around, okay. instead of Boston, but it's definitely such a special weekend, and I've lived in Boston for the past five years, so it was very sad not to have that last year. I think it was, yeah, one of the main reasons why, when I originally joined the BA, was like to be a part of these events and the community and all that, and it was just kind of depressing to not have that big like, reunion mm-hmm. of everyone coming to your city and kind of just showing people around and like being proud of the city. While we're on the topic of Boston, you had mentioned how you spent time living and training there and were a part of the community. And that weekend, 2019 Boston Marathon weekend, was sort of like your foray into all of that as a member of the BAA. Looking back at that time, what was it about that weekend that you remember fondly that sticks with you to this day? Yeah, we actually had a much different looking team than 2021 at that time. And it was just kind of a larger team. And it was so fun to be a part of the weekend and kind of representing the club. You know, I Mm -hmm. think that when you think about, you know, professional running is very isolating. You're doing your own thing. You're not racing very much. But to have like a race in the middle of the community and then truly being a part of everything, especially when I kind of didn't see a marathon. I mean, I still don't see a marathon in my future anytime soon. But I think it's a really does a really great job of like connecting anyone who of any ability who runs or touches running like in that place at the same time. Like you can't be in Boston during marathon weekend and not know it's the marathon. But right. for New York, you can be in New York on marathon weekend and not know there's a marathon going on. But in Boston, it is just kind of everywhere. And I, I love that was my number one thing that I loved about being a part of that. I was like, yeah, this this is my thing. Like I'm here. Like I feel like I was kind of and Boston is a small city, so you kind of feel like you walk around owning the place mm-hmm. a little bit. Aside from that weekend, what makes the Boston running community so special year-round? Ooh, that is a great question, too. So when I graduated from college, I was in that position where, you know, I was working at Reebok, I was working in a running company, and I wanted to join mm-hmm. the community. And the number of people that are not just running, but like want to race and compete in a high, high level. Like if they really went after it, like maybe they could be a pro too. You know, there's just such a a spectrum of people like competitively training. And I've said this a couple of times, like I definitely uh, think that that is a reason why I kept training at a high level was because of so many, you know, 
elite men and women, everyone to like, hey, text a group of 10 people who's doing this workout tomorrow. Like there's never a lack of people to run with. And quite honestly, like it's not the greatest place to run at the end of the day. Like you're thinking of all the places in the US to run. Mm-hmm. Hard miles in the Esplanade. It's the windiest. It's honestly the windiest city in America. It has terrible weather for half the year. It's humid as heck in the summer. But if it wasn't for the people, like I did, people wouldn't do it. But it, because of the people, I think everyone kind of forgets about all those other hard aspects about the city. Because it's not easy to live no. in Boston at all. No, it's not. I mean, I spent many years, I grew up in Massachusetts, spent many years training and living in and around Boston. And if it weren't for the people, I don't know that it would have quite the magic that it does. But you can go out any time of year and there are going to be people putting in miles, putting in hard workouts. You go to one of the indoor tracks during the colder months. I mean, it's a bit of a circus to be honest between club runners and even professionals who are getting their workouts in. And then this still amazes me to this day as I've sort of traveled around the country myself. You can find a competitive race in and around Boston any weekend of the year, almost any night of the year, to be honest. I mean, there are these random like Tuesday, Thursday night races that'll happen in different places that have some prize money and people show up to throw down. And I have yet to see that anywhere else in the United States. Yeah, I think it's like the combination of so many colleges that come, people competed in Boston. And I will say Boston doesn't exactly have like the hustle culture of other cities mm-hmm. of kind of, you know, New York people work more. And LA, it's complicated, and San Francisco is hilly. And I think it's all those factors combined that, you know, people are able to get out by six to do a workout with each other, or there's a crew that's willing to get up at 5 a.m. and do a workout. And I think one thing I credit the city, or maybe just hasn't broken down quite yet, is kind of like the access to tracks and stuff. And that's what I really hope in other areas. It's like, if you build, like, if you build it, they will come. Like, if you have a public track, people will work out there. Like, Brookline is, um, Brookline's not exactly Boston, but basically is. And it's a public track. It's open to everyone, but it's where BC works out. It's where all the pro teams work out. It's our favorite track, but it's just totally a public track, free and open for everyone (laughs) with a bathroom. It's really nice. Um, I don't want to stay on this for too, too much longer, but since you, you brought it up, I mean, that is a really unique aspect of that area. When I moved to California, my biggest frustration, still one of my biggest frustrations is how hard it is to get on a flipping track anywhere in California. I mean, there are a few and far between that are public access in San Francisco, close to where I am. You've got Kizar Stadium and you'll Which see Which is hard there. as heck and windy. It is. I mean, it's it's not an ideal environment for doing a workout, but it is accessible. Um, aside from that, I mean, I can't tell you how many tracks that I've been kicked off of in San Diego, in LA, and even here in the Bay Area. And that just doesn't happen in the Boston area. So shout out to all of the the schools and institutions that are allowing runners to get on the track at all hours and throughout the entire year. I want to bring the conversation back to you at this point. Fill me in on how you're doing and just where you're at right now. You seem to be at an interesting place in your life. Yes, definitely an interesting place and working on trying to share more publicly about, you know, when you don't exactly know where all the pieces fall. So long story short, which, you know, if you follow me on social media, I try to just share more than less. And so basically, so I graduated from college in 2016 and I was working full-time at Reebok um, in a couple different roles and kind of had an inflection point where I had run fast enough where I was making finals at US championships with a full-time job where I was like, 24 years old, this is kind of the do or die moment. Like if you want to pursue this, you got to go after it. You know, you didn't have the offers coming out of college, which is fine, but like you've made it to a high level at this point in 2019, I was like, there's 18 months to the Olympic trials, like go after it. And I had some experience kind of seeing sports marketing contracts and partnerships and things like that. And through networking was able to do an official visit to Brooks out in Seattle. And then serendipitously connected with the BAA at Harvard indoor track of all places. And eventually decided to take a contract to stay in Boston and run with the BAA. Um, Yeah. So that was kind of like the commitment. I was like, I'm going to do this for 18 months 
to the Olympic trials and like see how it goes. Um, in my first year of competing full time in 2019, I suffered my like first running injury. Like I had never gotten hurt before, which I guess is kind of unique, but never ever had gotten hurt prior to that. I had, had like, you know, nagging little things, but never an injury that had kept me out from training consistently. And I tore my plantar fascia, which is really horrible and painful, um, but really worked my way back, crawled my way back into fitness, had a couple coaching changes in between at the club and ended up um, running pretty quick in a 3K in February of 2020, ran like 8.51. And at that point, I was like, oh yeah, I am ready for the Olympic trials in June of 2020. Like, this is it. This is the time. You know, we, we're fit. We're ready to go. Obviously, the pandemic happened in that time. And that was... World yeah, shutdown. World shutdown. And we all had... Um, it was hard for everyone. You know, just a hard, tough time. But especially as an athlete. And, you know, I think like there's athletes who know that they want to like do this forever and that they are like committed to it. But for me, it's like, I had a very performance-based contract, you know, like it was, it was ending at the end of 2020. And I kind of was sitting there being like, oh my God, I did one year where I was hurt and I've run like one good race under this contract. I got to figure it out. And so I ended up scrambling and did some races in the summer with COVID, got my first COVID test, the ones where they went to your brain formerly, kind of figured it out, scrapped together a couple of races and time trials, ran like a 407 in Wellesley with the New Balance Girls with no timing, you know, weird stuff that we all did to make it work and put in a lot of work last fall um, and finally qualified for the Olympic trials, which was my ultimate goal was, you know, I want to be there and I once I, be, once I am there, I want to make the final. And I have normally trimmed in the 1500, but qualified in the 5K. And unfortunately, I suffered an injury in February, kind of just a foot strain. And it just, you know, we didn't have any indoor track access this year. So we were at camp in Mar January. And then it was just a really hard winter, you know. I mm -hmm. think little things come up, but then, you know, at that time, it started to get scary again and intense. And the kind of access to therapy and tracks and all that, like just all some of these pieces. And I don't blame any of that for sure, but my training definitely suffered because of the lack of consistency. Um, and then we went off to camp and I really tried to like head down, put it together. And yeah, unfortunately kind of just never really got the fitness to be where a place it was definitely overtrained if I'm reflecting on all of it. And then, um, yeah, definitely went into the Olymp Olympic trials, hurt, you know, went on that other side of the coin. And after that, I made the decision to leave the club. And I think it was one of those things where my goals and expectations, like when I, my goals and expectations when I joined the team was, you know, committing to the Olympic trials, doing this. But we, we were all changed through the pandemic. You know, mm -hmm. we, who I am, like, as a 24-year-old joining a professional team versus me, the 27-year-old, kind of living through this high-end running thing, one of my number one goals is, like, I don't want to just be stuck on the domestic mile circuit. Like, if I'm going to do this, like, I want to do it right. And I was, like, pretty bummed that my body just kind of tipped the other end of the scale and couldn't quite figure it out. And I think if I committed to, like, keep going and training in the environment that I was in, it kind of would have been the same cycle. So I was, like, you know what, this might not be the most prudent move, but I'm going to end this and start a new chapter. And so that's kind of what I've been doing this summer is figuring out what that chapter looks like. And I think for me, I, I have a podcast. Um, I spent some time like focusing on my own personal brand during the pandemic, and I really love doing that kind of stuff. But I think the stability of like a full-time job, that type of income, kind of training and running while being in the community is just ultimately a better fit for me. You just mentioned how the pandemic changed you. In what ways did you change over that year and a half period or this last year and a half period? Yeah, I was really happy that you led off of this conversation talking about the Boston running community. And I think one of my main reasons for joining the club was just, I love all the events. I was a middle school and high school coach. I love doing the community events. And when that aspect of it was gone, I just was not having as much fun. 
Mm-hmm. Like if it was just wake up, go to practice, do the pro athlete thing. Like I was a little bored and I really struggled with just like having one focus, you know? And when we were going off to coaching, it's like, it was weird too with everyone wearing masks and not going to races. It just felt like something was missing. So I think like that part of community not being there was very hard for me because I'm not someone whose ultimate goal from a young child, like I was talking to a friend the other day, she's like, my ultimate goal one day was make the only team and she ended up doing it, which is great. But like, that was never my ultimate goal. My ultimate goal was to just test my body and see how far it could go. But I think when that focus was just on one thing, I just had started to have like no fun with it. Mm-hmm. Let's rewind even further. When you graduated from Dartmouth, you mentioned how you took a job working for Reebok out mm-hmm. of school. You had a successful collegiate career while you were in Hanover. How were you thinking about your running career and what you wanted it to be upon graduation? You didn't sign a professional contract out of school, but you were still training and racing at a high level and seeing improvement. What was your thought process like at that time? Yeah, so I had a very funny senior year where I was like, okay, I'm going to do the three-season taper. I'm going to do cross-country Indoor, I'm going to do 3K because 3K is my favorite event. So I'm very sad that's not an event um, at the Olympic level. But And then the 15 outdoors. And I ended up PRing by like, I don't know, like 18 seconds. I don't even remember anymore. 16 seconds in the 1500, ending up third at NCAAs. Um, but I graduated during the 2016 Olympic year. So I didn't qualify for the trials. I was the first one out. And that kind of, you know, I already had the job, but it kind of forced the hand of like, okay, there's the top 30 women in the country, you're not one of them. No one really approached me, agents, anything like that. So I was like, okay, we're just going to work. And I think that I thought that I didn't really think about it. You know, I didn't think about being done or not done or anything, but I worked on running product. The building that I was working in in Canton had a track around it. And it's a beautiful I, building, by the way, and track. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, a shame that they don't have it anymore. Mm-hmm. And we were on a trail system. It was like the most perfect setup. Um, but I've talked about like my first year out of college, I didn't want to say no to anything because of running. Like I had this in my mind that I was like sacrificing so much because of running. In reality, it's like such a privilege to be able to do this. But in my mind, like young mind, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, ski on the weekends and see my friends. But then I would find myself in a bar on a Thursday being like, yeah, I'm not really having that much fun here. I'd kind of rather be going to bed early and waking up for that workout in the morning. So that's how I ended up like kind of committing to it and going after it. And there was a local coach in the area that kind of was like, just show up, just show up. You'll, you'll find it. You'll figure it out. And then my first year of school, I ended up running like uh, a PR in the mile of like 435, 436 at Adrian Martinez, which is a meet in mm-hmm. early June. And I like ended my season there. I was like, oh, it's been such a long year. Season's over, which is hilarious to think about because the pro track season goes until the end of August, September. When was it that the BAA noticed you and made you an offer to join their team? I started seriously pursuing that um, late 2018, early 2019. Um, I made the U.S. final in Des Moines, the 1500. I ran 408. And that's when I kind of started talking to some people. Mm-hmm. And when you signed the contract with BAA, was it such a situation? And I ask this because professional running, and I'm putting that in, in air quotes, means a lot of different things for a lot of different athletes. But was it a situation where you could focus mostly on training and racing and getting to the next level as an athlete? Or did you also have to supplement that with other work? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we don't talk about it enough, quite honestly, candidly. I think it was a position where there was a better offer on the table, but I realized, you know, I was like, I have a community here. Mm -hmm. I have, you know, my family is close by and I knew that I was going to quit my job. So for the months leading, I think for like nine months, I saved like, I was so frugal, saved so much money being like, okay, this is your safety net. Because the way the contracts kind of work, I mean, I can't obviously say too, too much, but like very performance heavy. So like, yeah, 
if you bet on yourself, like this could be a thing. So I was like, okay, just, you know, 18 months of the trials, like don't worry about it. Um, I ended up taking the coaching job just cause I enjoyed it and get a little bit. Um, the club was very generous. You know, you have a lot of support for travel and camps and stuff. So it, it works for a certain amount of times, but there's also really stressful parts. Like I had to, you know, do the state health insurance and, you know, figure out car stuff and move to an area that had cheaper rent. And, but, you know, it was all worth it. When the pandemic shut the world down in 2020 and postponed the trials, was it assumed that you would stay with the club through 2021 or whenever the trials happened? Or were there conversations at that point as to whether or not you wanted to stay with it or move on to something else? Yeah, so we had a new coach that just joined um, December of 2019. And I had heard from a lot of people, everyone was like, it's not good to keep changing coaches, all this. And I was already pretty frustrated because we had a coach and then an interim coach. And I was pretty bummed about that because I was like, I committed to this thing for the trials and we've already had two coaches. So I wasn't really interested in changing another setup. Um, I have you know, my roommate ran for new, then team new balance. Like she had a great group and things like that. So ever, and it was my college coach. So people were like, Oh, you could move if you wanted to. But you know, at that point, like I had just, we had conversations about them wanting to continue through the next year. And, um, I ended up qualifying for the Olympic trial. So I was like, it's not worth changing anything right now. I think that looking back on it and if I was a little bit more confident and, my running and didn't have those injuries before, like maybe I would have considered a different setup. But um, at that time, like that wasn't really something I was pursuing. What's your relationship to running look like right now? Yeah. So my relationship with running right now is funny. Like I definitely have running goals that I haven't accomplished. You know, there's things I want to do with running and, but I haven't been able to train consistently because I've had such nagging foot pain, which is the worst ever. So it's one of those things where I like, I want to run, but my body's still like chill out. So trying to figure it out, you know, hitting the PT really hard. And uh, something I want to do for, not, I don't know, about forever, but I think that, you know, I could potentially see myself doing another track season, but I'm going to like take my time and do it right. And it'll be an outdoor track season next year. I'm not trying to rush into anything too soon. I, I really wanted to do some fall road racing, things like that, but I, I'm not sure if my foot's in a, a good place to really start kicking up the hills and the tempo runs quite yet. So you're not in a position where you want to give up on your competitive goals in the sport just yet? I don't think so, but I think that I don't really want to be accountable to anyone but myself right now. Like mm -hmm. I'm not really interested in joining a team in a specific location. Like I really enjoy flexibility and I think it makes you, you know, you have different priorities in your life. You have other people you have to account for. You have your family. I think when you're straight out of college, it's just you. And then over time, it stops being just you. And I think happiness is my number one priority. But there's, you know, I've never broken 430 in the mile and I've run 407. I'm like, I know it's a stupid thing. But like, for me, that matters. Yeah, you know it's there. Yeah. Aside from your running goals, you mentioned how you have your podcast, More Than Running, with Dana, mm -hmm. which we'll talk about here in a bit. What else interests you at this point of your life at 27 years old? Yeah, there's uh, almost too many things. I think that one thing that really interests me is getting people, you know, like you said, you, you kind of alluded to it. It's like, was your contract enough to be able to just do this? And I think that there's a lot of contracts that aren't. And I really want our sport to be more sustainable, to give people a chance to keep going. I think that that's super important to me, especially with this name and image likeness thing for collegiate athletes. And so I feel like I'm very passionate about being an advocate for equal pay, especially for women's sports. So trying to figure out a way right now to, you know, experimenting with some friends to see if, you know, maybe that's a career path to explore. But yeah, I've been doing a job search, which is super tough. So if anyone out there needs a marketing and branding person, let me know. But it's, uh, yeah, it's been fun because I have been exploring a lot of freelance opportunities. So being unattached actually has been such a blessing to be able to, you know, not be with one specific brand right now um, and kind of, you know, work with different communities and meet different people. So I've kind of been attached to a brand 
I mean, all the way since college, you know, so it's kind of fun in the running industry to not be tied to one brand. Let's have a little thought experiment about that. Since you have experience working with brands and being a professional athlete, say you get to a place a year or two from now where brands want to bring you on board and work with you. Knowing what you know now, how would you approach those conversations differently? Yeah, I think that mm, that's really interesting. Do you mean like as an athlete? Yeah. Yeah, I think that there is so much value to being with a brand, but the brand has to want to be able to work with you and what you care about and what you want to promote and, you know, what communities you care about. So I think having, spending way more time on that end of things, I think one thing I ran into was kind of, I ended up starting to get really passionate about, you know, sharing my story and social media and things like that. And other brands were reaching out to me, but there was a lot of, um, you know, conflicts, you, you know, with, with what you're representing. So it's kind of like, I want, first and foremost, I want to represent myself and, you know, I, whatever brand I work with has to like be aligned with my goals and values. And that's not to say the BA wasn't like, they definitely were mm-hmm. like, especially with the community elements, but you know, it has to be sustainable. So I think really good partners are people that are creative and can work together. So my advice to anyone who's looking for a brand is that it's a lot more than the dollar amount. It's just like how the people are treating you and kind of how the people are, you know, encouraging your, you know, whether it's athletic goals or community goals or anything like that. So those are the best partners. I'm sure you've experienced that yourself. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's different in what I'm doing with my brand partnerships on some level versus an athlete who also has performance goals tied to their contract. And I've thought about that myself. I'm like, huh, well, this this is interesting. Um, I can partner with brands for a year, two years, have their support. We're aligned on our mission and our initiatives and who it is that we're trying to reach. But I don't have the pressure of having to go out and hit a certain time or, you know, finish in the top three. And I, I think if I did, like just thinking about it, um, it would make what I am doing a lot less fun. And I think about that for for athletes who have that kind of pressure on themselves where, you know, there is that that performance side of it that if for whatever reason, whether it's just a slump injury, as you mentioned earlier, and you're not able to do that, it can really send you into a tough spiral. Yeah. And it's really hard too when, you know, there are, this is the best system to be a pro athlete at the end of the day is with a college. That's why a lot of us do really well in college. You have a training room, you have an environment, you have all these resources, and then you're kind of sent to the wolves a little bit. You know, you you have to, you know, some clubs do it right where they have a PT. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of places without naming any specific names, but it's like, come back to me when you're healthy. And you have to figure it out. And you have to be your own personal care system. And you have to touch all those aspects of um, who you are. So there definitely is a benefit of like, hey, if you could just get paid more. I think they say like LeBron James pays like, what, a million dollars a year on his PT and healthcare and stuff. But like, that's never going to happen in track. But if you have, you know, it's not just about the performance. It's, hey, if I get, hey, Brand, if I get hurt for six months, like, how are you going to support me through that? Mm-hmm. You know, like those, are the, those are the conversations you truly need to have. And if those systems aren't in play, it's like, ugh, red flag. Do you think those things are starting to shift a little bit just as the discourse around this stuff gets a little bit louder and louder? Yeah, I think we still haven't reached a tipping point of people truly talking about it with um with NDAs and everything. And like, there's this hold of kind of, you're not really supposed to talk about things. It's like super frustrating. The athletes talk about it with them themselves, but publicly right. there's kind of a barrier. I think as more former athletes become coaches, like there's some organizations like, you know, Dathan at On and kind of Alistair Craig at this new Puma group, like they know what it's like to be an athlete and that voice can be very impactful to know what systems you need in place. So I'm hoping that that's kind of the tipping point, but I'm not sure exactly how the group mentality is going to go moving forward. It seems like we're still shifting that way. Like you join a group, you get in a place, that's where you are, but that just doesn't work for everyone. So 
I'm hoping that there's like more flexibility of options of, you know, taking a chance on people straight out of school. And I hope that quite honestly, I think this should come from USATF. I think that there should be some sort of model to give people like a year, you know, to see if you can make it. Cause think about all the talent we lose just because people don't get a contract the first year of school. It's just, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about myself in this situation, but there's a lot of people that are not getting offers and just kind of like a talent fall off because we don't have, you know, maybe someone doesn't think they're going to be a world championship medalist at 22. Yeah. And it's one of those situations where you have to keep that momentum going, I think, out of school, because if someone goes in another direction, whether it's for financial or other reasons, I mean, some people might come back to it eventually years later, but I think it gets harder and harder to do that as time goes on. So if you catch someone when they're hot coming out of college, or if they're just starting to show some potential like you did toward the end of your collegiate career, and it's like, hey, let's give them a few years to develop. I look at some other professional sports, like they have developmental leagues for, Mm -hmm. you know, that type of athlete who comes out of school. And it's like, they're not there yet, but give them a few years and, and they might. And I'd love to see a situation in running where more of those athletes can get a chance because I think it will make the sport and interest in the sport stronger as a whole. For sure. You know, I'd love to see some sort of draft where like you have a regional area and you can join a training group and, you know, figure it out. I had one opportunity to join NJNY, but I wasn't fast enough to get money. And I just, it's not a good training setup to be working a job and, you know, you don't have experience. So it's most likely a job on your feet and all that. So yeah, there's a lot of people that do fall off that way. And there's a lot of amazing women I know that have grinded through this sport. I've never had a sponsor or lost a sponsor and never gone back. And you're like, Ugh, there's something broken here. To bring this conversation back to things that you're involved in and working on, I want to talk about your podcast, More Than Running with Dana Giordano. And I know you're on a bit of a break right now. I'm waiting for season three to drop, but yeah, we don't want to be in a break anymore. We're waiting for a few things. I have so many episodes in the bank. I'm really excited about it. All right. I'm going to let you talk about it here in a second. But for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, you mentioned a little bit about this earlier. But on your show, I mean, you're talking with women who are doing inspiring, insightful things in running, whether they're athletes or they're working behind the scenes. And I'd love to learn from you just about the genesis of the show and when the idea for it sparked and then how long it was from that spark until it actually became something. Yeah, so all credit I have to give to Chris Chavez, who's the founder of Sidious Mag. Um, We had a mutual friend, but we met at the Milrose Games, I think in 2018 when I was working. And we just connected and I really loved what he was doing on his platform and he eventually, um, this was in fall of 2019, just sent me this little microphone that I'm talking into now in a box to my house, just sent it. And I did nothing with it for several months. And I recorded my first podcast with Ellie Perrier, which please do not listen to because it makes me cringe. It's so bad. The first one I ever recorded. And I just really was frustrated by the fact that like, you know, Ellie's a great example. Like Ellie grew up on a dairy farm and we all know that, but like no one really knows who she is and like why she cares about it. You know, it's like, doesn't ever get past like the same alternative headlines. Like that's my, was my big problem. I'm like, we have one alternative headline for female athletes and all athletes to a certain extent, but it's just like, I care more about women at the end of the day. Like Mm -hmm. I care more about promoting women. That's like just where my passion is. So yeah, it's like every race you watched, it was Ellie grew up on a dairy farm and this person grew up here. And it's like you only get one alternative tagline. And, you you know, when we watch other sports, you get to learn way more about people as humans. And I just feel like we weren't getting that. And there are lots of other podcasts. You know, the podcasting space is crowded. But I thought that, like the little nugget that I had that kind of separated me was, you know, trying to do it myself too, like trying to run and compete and maybe having that little different insight of being a fellow competitor. So, and then I just kind of started talking to women who I thought were super cool that no one knew about, you know, I'm kind of a little bit of a running nerd at the end of the day. So I was like, do people who in their twenties know who Bobby Gibb is and why she's such a badass? Like, do people know about Marla Runyon, like, and that she, all that she's done. And I kind of just, you know, those stories have been told, but, you know, 
in order to like know your sport, you have to know the history of it. So I kind of wanted right. to bring that sort of element. And I think that exists in this, you know, predominantly male environment sometimes where, you know, you get to a space and everyone's talking about the good old days and male running and all that. But I just don't think younger women follow it quite as closely. And I just kind of wanted to be a space to be like, hey, do you want to learn about the sport? And, you know, let's see how we got to this place where we are. And a lot of times, like, it does shift more to the running side than the more than, just because that's what people are used to talking about. But Mm -hmm. I'm excited for season three because I've just kind of like I found my voice a little bit more. And the first kind of seasons, you've, I don't know, you've hundreds of episodes now. Like every episode you get a little bit better, Mm -hmm. more comfortable. So yeah, that's what I'm mostly excited for. And it's just been such a pleasure to be able to talk to people in just like a intimate way, but it's all been virtual for me mostly. I haven't done, I think I've done like two in person. In person, I feel more comfortable doing it that way. I just think it's a different conversation, at least for me, when you have them in person and you have more control just over the actual tech and audio, which I think is every virtual podcaster's biggest nightmare. Um, But I think it changes the conversation. But I mean, fortunately, we have the technology now and a lot of it improved over the pandemic, quite honestly, to be able to create high quality shows where people can be in different places and Another positive of that is it increases accessibility um, because it's hard to get in the same place as someone um, more often than not. We're having this conversation now virtually, even though we're probably like a half an hour drive away from one another, which I'm a little bit bummed about, but we'll just have to do this again sometime. Um, But not to get too far off track, you mentioned how you want other you know, 20-something-year-old women to learn about the history of the sport, the Bobby Gibbs, the Marla Runyons. Um, I don't think you've had her on your show, but like the Joan Benoit Samuelsons, like the the figureheads in running who are are largely and somewhat silently responsible for a lot of what we see now. How did you learn about these women as you were coming up? Because as you mentioned, these stories aren't, pushed to the forefront oftentimes. Um, You do have to go digging for them. And I'm curious, like, how you went about doing that as you were coming up. Yeah, so it has to go way back to high school where my high school track coach was an amazing human, Dave Shostak, shout out. And he, you know, we went on a lot of runs and he just, like, really cared about the sport and, you know, kind of taught me where you look for things and way back at the miles. Split, not, not, I wasn't really a die stat person, but you know, kind of got into it and like was super into early flow track and like watching those videos and things like that. But that wasn't common for like my peer group mm-hmm. to do those sort of things. And then while I was working at Reebok, my manager was kind of similar in that way, like very passionate about the sport. But we started working on a project with Catherine Switzer. Um, and so everyone knows the story about her getting pushed off the marathon course and all these things. And I ended up figuring out about Bobby Gibb that way because I was like, mm, this is an interesting story, but it's kind of like Bobby Gibb did it first and she did it fast. So, yeah, very cool that we've marketed this awesome Catherine Switzer story, but um, you're not the only one. And Bobby Gibb was so fast at her time running mm-hmm. in like improper folk, like astonishingly fast. So, and that's the same thing I feel like Joan Benoit, you know, it's like so fast, so early. And, you know, we really haven't obviously progressed and fast times are cool and all, but I was thinking to myself, I was like, how did I not know? I was really offended. I was like, how did I not know about this person? Like, I care about this sport and I don't even know. Like, that's crazy, you know, to have a person who literally opened up the doors for all of us to do this. And I don't even know who that is. Like, that's wrong at the end of the day. So that's what kind of tipped me over to the tipping point of um, just being like, yeah, we, I want people to know these stories. And sometimes those are the least listened to episodes, <laughs> quite honestly, because I think people don't know them and they don't have social media in the same way we do. Um, when I recorded with Bobby, she's such a sweetheart, but like it was her first time ever using Zoom and like her sweet son had to like figure it out, you know? So it's, it's just harder to get out there and tell those stories. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's very rewarding. Do you see yourself as a door opener? 
I feel like I'm less of a door opener or more of like a connector of people. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that um, my boyfriend came for the first time to his, hilariously, his first track meet ever was the Olympic trials that he got to see um, because he doesn't come from this world. And we're just walking around and he's like, how do you know so many random people? And this is not to toot my own horn, but it's like, I worked in the running industry. Mm -hmm. I played with a sports marketing hat for a very brief period of time. I ran and I like just really like connecting with people. And I was in the Boston running community of all different places. So all these different hats kind of come on when you're in a big environment like that. And I don't know, I kind of just hold on to people and, you know, don't forget about them. How does your show evolve heading into season three? Like what elements of the first two seasons do you carry forward and what do you want to do differently? Yeah, I think one of the things is that I'm having more um, digestible episodes, so not having them be as long and extensive, kind of more topic-based. I've spoken about this kind of in a couple season recaps, so Mm -hmm. it's not going to be all the episodes because some do lend them more towards long form. But having like, I recorded an episode recently, like a 30-minute episode with Chanel Price, where we kind of talked about like overcoming setbacks and injuries. So having certain guests on, but you know, they have so much to talk about, but more on like a specific, you know, conversation, more of like a radio show vibe where you're like, oh, I'm bringing on Mario today to talk about podcasting and things like that. So um, it's definitely testing it out. It's all, it's all an experiment, but I think because it's my own platform, just get, you get to do that and you get to play around. And I really enjoy the feedback that I get from certain people and recommendations of guests and stuff, but definitely taking a lot more time to be deliberate with guest choice and want to make sure that, you know, what I care about and the people that I believe need, need a platform can get heard. Do you think more than running can be more than a podcast? For sure. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm really excited about right now. So can been putting together a website and kind of, um, haven't quite tipped to the newsletter or things like that, but I'm, um, experimenting with a YouTube channel at the moment. I, editing is like the hardest thing in the world. So, and maybe I'm too much of a perfectionist, but I think that I try to think about like, if I was in high school and I admit who I am right now, I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'd love to know what it's like to go to that event from the inside, you know, and I think that's something I take for granted and I want to share those experiences. So that kind of more than running aspect, it's not as related to women's sports or some capacity like that. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I'd love to do is like live shows at events. I think that'd be really fun. I love, I've loved announcing. I've announced it a couple races and events, but you know, I think once we can get back to in-person events, like panels would be really fun to do. A few more things before we wrap up this conversation. As I was researching for this podcast, I can't remember where I found this. It might have been on the BAA's website in your bio, but it said you lived in Singapore for Mm -hmm. a while. How did you end up living there? And in what ways did that experience influence you? Yeah, so very, very far back when I was three, four, and five, I lived in Singapore. So I've been to kindergarten. It's always my fun fact. I've been to kindergarten three times because I started earlier over there. So I've done three-time graduate of kindergarten. And I were there for my dad's work. And yeah, I think that it's kind of opened up a love of travel and new experiences. So it's something I've been missing a lot during the pandemic is international travel. But yeah, it's kind of instilled a love of seeing other cultures in the world in me. Well, I can't necessarily remember my time as like a very small person out there. Um, it's been something that I've always been really grateful for of my parents kind of encouraging, you know, like when I graduated from college, my girlfriends and I at 23 did a month in Thailand, like by ourselves. And, you know, we were never scared to do that. So I think that's such a privilege to be able to, you know, see traveling as like one of my favorite things to do and experience new cultures and not be afraid of, you know, being immersed in everything new. So I think sometimes I do get a little unsteady when I'm in the same place for too long, which my both aspects of my professional career in the shoe industry and then as professional athlete have let me be on the road. I mean, as a collegiate athlete, you're away every two weeks too. So I think that probably makes me the most uncertain is like being in one place for the same amount of time. 
on that note, does it make you feel more comfortable in your current situation now where you don't really know what the next step is? We're having this conversation. You're in San Francisco. You mentioned how you're off to Park City yeah. next, and you don't really know where you're going from there. I mean, for me, I'm the complete opposite. I would be like, uh, this is not great for me. But for you, does that almost like excite you or energize you in a way to know that the possibilities are somewhat endless at this point? For sure. And like I've talked about with a lot of friends in my my peer group, it's like you don't have responsibilities. You don't have a house. You don't have kids. You have remote jobs. And, you know, I think with the freelance stuff I've been working on right now and definitely pursuing like more full-time opportunities, um, it is like kind of like a it, both sides of that, of where do I want to be? What's going to make me happy? Uh and I think that it's very liberating in a way, but you're also like, maybe something could just tell me to like be there for a little bit and I'd be happy. But yeah, I'm not afraid of living out of a suitcase. I'm good at it. And it quite honestly makes you want to get rid of everything you own where you're like, oh, the suitcase is too big. I pack too much stuff. Um, so I think that I've been enjoying kind of, this is such a cheesy TikTok thing, but there's um, this trend about like manifesting and it's all about like, I don't chase, I attract. And like, what's supposed to happen to me will come to me. And it's one of those things where, you know, if you keep connecting with people and you keep putting it out there, it's like the right opportunity will will find me. And, you know, my foot will trend upwards and it's all good things. I'm so lucky at the end of the day. Last question. Not that long ago, after the Olympic trials, you wrote that I want to rediscover the love for it all. Do you feel like you're back on track to doing that? For sure. I definitely haven't felt the desire to like go out and like hammer at tempo runs, probably because my foot just doesn't feel 100%. But yeah, after the Olympic trials, I was pretty like distraught. It just sucked to put something so much of yourself into one goal and then like just suck at it and you're like what the heck I did everything I was supposed to supposedly on paper but I think the one thing I found is that I just wasn't really having fun anymore and a couple people told me that but when you're in it you can't you can't see that so yeah definitely know that I love running I want to be a part of it and I think that you know running without pain is a number one priority and I think a lot of us suffered through that for a really long time so that's number one goal but yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I think it doesn't have to be so road and this is what we do every year and we stick to the same cycle. It's like, it's okay. You can figure it out on your own time, you know? So I'm hoping the altitude air just gets me fit like by like symbiosis when I'm over yeah. there. <laughs> I love it. Well, Dana, this was a fun conversation. There's so much more that I want to talk to you about. So we'll have to do a round two at some point. But anyone listening to this, check out More Than Running podcast season three dropping soon we'll just say soon, soon. Um, on a podcast <laughs> platform near you dana giordano thank you so much for coming on the morning shakeout podcast thank you so much for having me all right that's it for this episode of the morning shakeout podcast a big thank you to both new balance and precision hydration for sponsoring this episode of the show the Fresh Foam 1080 V11 from New Balance is an absolute workhorse and it's been my go-to trainer for most of my non-workout runs in 2021. It's got great cushioning underfoot that's protective but not too soft, providing a responsive ride that I really enjoy and appreciate. Check it out at newbalance.com and consider adding a pair to your rotation today. The folks at Precision Hydration are experts in helping you nail and customize your nutrition and hydration strategy for training and racing. I've been a devotee to their products for the past four years now and use pH products regularly in training and racing. Go to precisionhydration.com and take their free online sweat test or use the quick carb calculator to get a personalized hydration or nutrition strategy to test out in training. As a listener of the show, you can get 15% off your first order by using the code TMS15, that's capital T, capital M, capital S, 15, when checking out at precisionhydration.com.
couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you'll love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Welcome back to More Than Running with Dana. And today's guest is Chanel Price, an athlete for the Oregon Track Club who has been running at an elite level for a very long time. But this past year recently placed fifth at the Olympic Trials, broke two minutes in the 800 six times, which you hadn't broken since 2015, has been an elite pacer, bringing her all around the world and overcome so much injury and strife. And this episode theme is about why keep going when life gets hard. So I couldn't have thought of a better guest than Chanel. So welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dana. How did you kind of rebuild your confidence? Obviously going you know, getting fit and steady, stepping up to the line is one thing. Rebuilding yourself from injury is another thing. But true internal confidence and belief, like how did you find that missing puzzle piece? Yeah, yeah, that's so good. I think I think for me it, it all started in, um, in practice. You know, I, I, that's usually where I, I, I carry my confidence into races is, is like from my sessions, right? And so for – for a while I was, I was getting my butt kicked by Sabrina and Hannah, <laughs> you know, just because when I, when I was cleared to run coach was, he was kind of just like, look, we don't really have that much time. He just kind of threw me in. <laughs> he was like, hang on for dear life. One day it'll click One you'll keep closing the gap. And one day you'll, you'll be right with them in, in training. Just, just trust me. And, um, and he was right. I mean, the, the gap slowly got smaller and I started to, to catch up to Hannah and Sabrina in training. And, and as you're doing that, your, your confidence slowly, you know, it gets, it gets a little bit higher and higher as your, as your training starts to get um, better and better. And so um, I can, I can remember um, exactly where it happened. It was when we headed to the, one of the races in Portland in May. And, and I knew Sabrina was going after the Olympic standard. I wasn't quite sure if I was ready yet. Um, but I told coach, I said, I want to get back to my, my front running in this race. You know, I don't know what's going to happen the second lap, but the first lap I'm going to, I want to, I, you know, trials are coming up. I want to, I want to get back to, to front running. That's where I feel comfortable. Um, and I know I can help Sabrina get this Olympic standard if I get the race going. Um, and that's what I did. I took the lead and, and, you know, Kate Grace was in there, Sabrina Sutherland, Raven Rogers. Um, we all, we all just got after it in Portland. And, um, I think, that's when it clicked. I didn't win. I don't even know if I came top three, but I was like, uh, I'm back. You know, <laughs> I ran, I broke two minutes for the first time. And since, like we said, since 2015 and, um, yeah, so it started in practice. And then once practice started, started going better, I told coach, I, you know, I, I want to take the lead at this race. Let's see what happens. And um, I didn't win, but I ran fast and we all got the standard and it was just a huge celebration. I can still remember we were all jumping on each other like, oh, we got the Olympic standard. Like It, it was a great day. And so once we did that, um, we returned to training and um, yeah, that the, the confidence, it all came from practice. We, we, were, we were really, really getting after it in our sessions together. So That's such a good life mantra too, you know, the, it's like you're rehearsing for the moment that you can see yourself in. You, yes, know? you, yes. you saw the moment and you knew there's a gap in between, but you weren't afraid to go after it. I think that's such a good life lesson of we do things before we're ready. Mm-hmm, you know, you didn't right. know necessarily if you're ready, but if you didn't try, 
you never would have done it. And I think absolutely that you, you tried. So um, one of the th- other things you wrote in one of your Instagram posts is that you you celebrate small victories. Mm-hmm. And yes. is that something that you kind of think about all the time in your daily life of celebrating these small victories of, especially when you come off an injury, you're like, yes, I got to jump on one foot and it didn't hurt. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I just, it's so vivid in my mind. Like it was yesterday, just um, going to the PT and him letting me do just a little bit more, just a little bit more, you know, oh, you can, you can run on the Alter G for one more minute and it's that, that's a victory, you know, or you can take a little bit more, um, you can add a little bit more body weight to to your run today on the Alter G. You know, you like you said, you have to celebrate those small victories, and um, even getting closer and closer in training to my training partners. You know, it's 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 hard getting your butt kicked every single day in practice, um, but you kind of have to switch your perspective. You know, okay, well, I'm closer today. I'm closer today. I'm going to change, try to change it into a positive instead of going home like, oh, gosh, they kicked my butt again. It's like, oh, no, I, I'm five seconds behind instead of 10 today. So just all about changing your perspective. 